I'm Janneke Mayers. I am originally from Trinidad, the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago, but I live in the tiny island of Tobago. Hello and welcome to Obehi Podcast. I'm your host, Obehi Ewafo, and I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now let's get started with this episode. I am passionate about languages. Uh, that has been the love story of my life. And uh, as I like to say, language opens doors, language bridges barriers. So it's great to be here with you, Behi, um, having a conversation, bridging barriers uh, across the globe. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that uh, the opportunity to, to be able to, to be able to talk to you and to share this space together. This is very important for me. Uh, like we usually do here, we try to uh, know who we have in front of us because this podcast is dedicated to African diaspora. Uh, so for this reason, we are intentional about our our origin, where we are coming from. It's not a mistake at all. We are intentional about that. It's some of the things I'm going to be asking you, uh, so it can help also the people that are the people that are listening to us. So let's start from the basis. Where were you born? Uh, tell me what you see around you in those places. Give us a little background of yourself as a, as a young person. Sure. So you speak about the African diaspora. So the, the history of my region, the Caribbean region, is basically uh, a history that would have been forged uh, for many centuries in, in slavery. The transatlantic slave trade brought our African ancestors to the Caribbean to work on the mainly sugarcane plantations. And so I live in what is a former British colony, Trinidad and Tobago, which got its independence from Britain in, in 1962. And so we've had, well, of course, before um, the arrival of our African ancestors, the Amerindians, those are the indigenous Indians who lived here at the time when Columbus would have rediscovered, and we are very intentional when we say Columbus did not discover the Caribbean, he rediscovered uh, the indigenous <laughs> peoples who were already living here, living in harmony in the Caribbean when he came. But fast forward to um, the now. So the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago, as I said, is a former British colony. Um, we are quite small on the global scale. We're just about 1.4 million in population. That's uh, probably the equivalent of, of a small African city, but that's our entire country. And it's split between two islands, the larger island, which is Trinidad, which is a more industrial, um, industrial and commercial, and Tobago, a small island, just 60,000 people living here. That's like tiny, tiny little village somewhere, right, in Africa. And um, tourism is more is, is the focus of the economy here in Tobago. And um, as, as a country, a twin island republic, we are a small player on the international oil and gas scene. We, we produce oil and gas. So as small as we are, uh, we get to, to hang out with the big players in, in that particular industry. Though um, we have been making efforts to diversify into agriculture, agro-processing, financial services, tourism, as I mentioned, and to really uh, get away from the fossil fuel 
industry. So that's sort of the economic background of my country. You asked, what does it look like? Well, uh, we're a tropical Caribbean island. So uh, yes, you can close your eyes and just imagine the aquamarine blue waters, the coconut trees, green everywhere, um, lots of exotic wildlife, flora and fauna. Uh, in particular in Tobago, if I look out my, my window right now, I don't want to make you jealous, but it's, it's a <laughs> sea of green. It's just a sea of green, uh, all kinds of different trees. And this is the hour when the birds are out uh, feasting on, on the tropical fruits. They're waking up to the day. Uh, so I, I, I live in a paradise. That's lovely. That is good to hear. That is really good to hear. All right. Now, tell me about your... Um, your adolescent years. So, uh, growing up in Trinidad and Tobago, uh, tell me a bit about your young adolescent year. What do you remember of that period? Well, I'd have to say the first memories that come to mind sincerely are very troubled. I think I was quite a troubled um, adolescent. I did have a hard time adjusting. Um, but what kept me anchored, I would say, in school was I discovered foreign languages. Uh, I started uh, learning French and Spanish at the age of 10. And that, now with my adult hindsight, I can say that must have been an escape for me. I felt like I was able to discover new countries and cultures um, and even take a journey inwardly to myself through foreign languages. And so for seven years, because I guess that we, we've inherited the British education system. So it's uh, seven years or five to seven years of high school. And for those years, I thoroughly enjoyed my experience of learning foreign languages, foreign music, uh, things that really allowed me to, to escape from my reality at the time that was a bit troublesome. What, what do you mean troublesome? Can you explain that? Uh, yeah. So at the time, uh, my parents were going through a divorce. I am the eldest of three siblings. And I felt like I really had the weight of the world on me. Uh, also having the weight of sort of sheltering my younger siblings at the time. Um, through that period that my parents were going through. Uh, for anyone who has been in a family where there's separation or divorce, you would know that it's, it's not a pleasant experience. Um, and while, of course, adults make these decisions for themselves, it does affect the family structure, it does affect the children. So uh, when I say it was a troublesome period, you know, I, I don't want to go into detail, but I was a very troubled uh, adolescent. Um, on the flip side of that, though, as I said, I think uh, the school experience was able to ground me and learning foreign languages was a way to escape my reality and really almost take on, uh, take on a new persona because even in my later years, I recognize that when I speak a foreign language, I am channeling a different personality. I am almost not the same person when I'm speaking French compared to when I speak Spanish or English. I'm not schizophrenic, but there is just something about the language that embodies, it embodies an entire culture. And it's almost as if you put on a garment of um, culture when you 
when you adopt that language. And that that has been the case. It still is the case uh, in my profession now as an interpreter. When I, I put on my French brain, um, my voice, my tone changes. My voice is different. My pace is different. Uh, I'm thinking differently. So um, I, I, I can say it now as an adult, looking back at my adolescent time, that is something that would have molded me uh, learning languages certainly molded me, molded my uh, my way of thinking, my perspective of the world, because I was, uh, through reading, through listening um, to interviews and news in a foreign language, foreign languages, you're literally filtering the world through those languages. I don't know if I'm, if you're understanding what I'm saying, but hey, yeah, sure, it's sure, a filter. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm coming to that. I, I will try to understand. That is very important. It's very, very important. <laughs> now, um, I would like you to spend a few seconds explaining to Ross about uh, the culture that you grew up with. Tell us something about that. Okay, you give us some background, the green and the environment, the tourist attraction, as it were. But in terms of the culture, the behavior, the the costume of the people. What do you want to say about that? I mean, your people there. I think the, the, the one thing or the first thing that we are known for in Trinidad and Tobago is our multicultural, multi-ethnic society. And that came about because of history. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, we had our African ancestors who came during slavery, when slavery was abolished in between 1834, 1838. Indian um, indentured laborers were then brought in because somebody had to work on the sugarcane plantations. Uh, so the Indian indentured um, laborers were brought in. This was another wave of migration that came to the Caribbean and, and more specifically to Trinidad and Tobago. And then we've had successive waves of migrants who came um, from Asia, from Europe, from Middle East. And so that has really given rise to a multi-ethnic multi society where, um, you know, you walk around in the streets and you can't really speak about a pure breed. Uh, there's just so much mixing and intermarriages that, you know, people people look like they could be from any part of the world. You know, you have people with African traits, Indian traits, uh, Caucasian traits mixed. Um, you look at me, you can't necessarily tell exactly <laughs> what went into me, but I've got a little bit of African, a little bit of Indian, a little bit of, um, I have, uh, ancestors from neighboring Venezuela as well, and Amerindians, the, the indigenous Indians who lived here. So um, I'm not saying everybody looks like me, but everybody has some kind of a mix. So that's from the multi-ethnic perspective. In terms of multicultural, so all of these different um, ethnic groups brought with them their customs and their traditions. So today you find, for example, I mean, I love food. I'm a foodie. So let's talk about food. We have such a variety of food. We've got, you know, uh, food that might have been adapted to the to the crops that were grown here, but resemble um, food that you would find on the African continent as well. So we use a lot of corn. Um, from the Indians, we have um, a lot of rice and um, different kind of rotis, what they call roti, dalpuri, different sort of um, flour-based flatbread type. 
uh, dishes that the Indians brought. And of course, curry, curry, masala, jeera. These are spices that mm. are, uh, that are, <laughs> that would have, you know, come with them that we use a lot in our, our food. And what's interesting is that there are national dishes from pretty much every, every ethnic group. So we have a dish called doubles. It's it's like a breakfast. It's like a little fried um, fried flour with curried uh, chickpeas. And people line up to buy these things. Hardly anyone makes it at home, but you go there, lots of these doubles vendors everywhere. And that's like the national breakfast. Everybody eats this. You don't have to be Indian to eat doubles. Um, we have a dish called pilau, which is it's it's from the African uh, roots. Sorry about my dog in the background, but she's hearing me speaking, and she's wondering why aren't you why aren't you speaking to me? Um, but <laughs> so we have the pilau, which is a, like a rice and peas mix, um, and this is from our African heritage. It's like rice and peas cook up, and we've got. Um, a dish that I particularly love that I make very well, uh, and it's called pastel. It's it's actually from our Venezuelan heritage because there was a wave of Venezuelan migrants who came to Trinidad uh, when the Spanish were in charge. So we've had different uh, colonial masters. We had the Spanish, we had the British who were here. The French had a little season before they got bumped out. And so we have dishes from that era that now have become the traditional dish at Christmas time. That's like the national Christmas dish, pastels, but came from Venezuela. So there really is a very um, diverse range of, of food. Um, we can talk about the, the culture as well, the music. Our music is, is quite, it's is, is world music. It's a fusion music. We gave birth to music called Calypso, which is along the lines of social commentary. It's very, what we call conscious music with a very Caribbean tropical beat, Calypso. And our country also gave birth to the only instrument that arose in the 21st century, the steel pan. And the steel pan came about from the steel, the, the drums, the, the, the barrels that are used to store oil. Some brilliant man named uh, Spree Simon decided to take one of those oil drums and mold it into an instrument that we play today. There is a national um, steel orchestra and this steel pan has been exported around the globe. And this instrument, this fascinating instrument that's extremely versatile came out of an oil drum. So I can go on and on and on. Those oh, cool. are just a few examples of the, the rich um, diversity of our Caribbean and Trinidad and Tobago culture. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. I, I love it. I thought I would like you to stop, but anyway, at a point where we we're going to have to. <laughs> that is really great. It's great. One thing I wanted to say is that uh, how simple is it to uh, put all these different uh, culture together in one to create this uh, multi-cultural uh, society uh, from multi-ethnic society? It basically appeared to be that this is the whole world put together in one place with all the kaleidoscope, with all the beauty in it. Most of the time, we live in, in peace and harmony. 
let's just say that. Uh, when we look at the demographics of the population, uh, according to the, 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 the last statistics, it's about 40% persons of African descent, 40% of Indian descent, and 20% is just mixed up with everything else that, uh, or everyone else that would have come to our shores. And, and as I said, for the most part, we live in harmony. I would say that harmony is threatened whenever there is a general election. Let me explain. Uh, politically, the, the, the political parties that have emerged since independence have been along the lines of ethnicity. So there's one party that is generally recognized as the Indian party. There's another party that's generally recognized as the African party. And there have been over the, the decades, we're just over 50 years old in terms of independence, there have been other parties, political parties that showed up on the scene that tried to propose some sort of um, alternative to these two major parties um, with limited success, I would say. But what tends to happen around election time, um, and I'm, I'm not a political scientist, I'm, I'll give you my opinion, uh, which is simply that the politicians tend to play around with this issue of ethnicity and class to sort of bolster their, their supporters because politicians know who the core of their supporters are and they will pander to their supporters who are of a particular ethnicity. And I say this uh, and I call it out because it is particularly dangerous the ways in which um, we've all seen politicians use these kinds of um, discourse and tricks to almost play one against the other. And it's, it's, it should not be tolerated. Um, it is something that is, it really has no place in our society. Um, and it's, it's something that I would like to see change in my lifetime. Um, unfortunately, uh, there is, I would say, a majority of people of a certain age who buy into these kind of tricks and, and ideas. Um, and, and let's just face it, I'm sorry to say this, I love my country, but you know, sometimes you have to call things out. There are people who will listen to and absorb and believe anything you present to them without questioning, without, uh, without trying to analyze. And these people are in a majority and so they will go along with um, these kind of mm, statements being made by, by certain politicians about who is superior. And again, I say that there's no place in our society for that. So every five years, which is when we have general elections, um, according to the Westminster system, the political system as well, uh, parliamentary system has been inherited from the, the British colonial days. So we still have that, that um, parliamentary system where we vote for members of parliament and those in the majority form the, um, the government, uh, whichever party wins the most votes uh, forms the government. And so every five years we have this sort of disturbance of our general peace. Um, and general good relations. 
And I would like to really see that change to a point where we can hold all our politicians accountable, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of our ethnicity. We, we want to make sure that we are being best served by the people that we elect into power. Because when you get into power, you are governing an entire nation. You're not just governing one ethnic group or one social class. So that's a bit of my, my rant and um, my, <laughs> my plea as well, that we stop playing these really silly games when it comes to politics. Thank you for that. Thank you for reminding me that also, because uh, in Africa, in many parts of Africa, that also is happening. A good example would be uh, in Nigeria, uh, where you have uh, three major ethnic groups, the Hausa, the Igbo, the Yoruba. So a lot of the politicians that we have uh, try to play politics along this line, and it's a, it's a politics of division instead of a politics of unity. And this division has been hampering the Nigerian national identity and the progress of the country. Because oftentimes you have a leader who, of course, they know that maybe it is of the pre because we have a presidential system now. Uh, they know that as a president elected as a president of the country, you are going to govern the entire country. You are going to have the armed forces under your control, the police, uh, all the institutions, both local and do uh, both domestic and foreign policy. You are going to be in charge of that, which means you're not only really going to be representing the Yoruba, the Hausa, or the Igbo in this case. You're going to be representing the entire country. So why not just play the politics of the country, of the interests of the people? What do the people want? Uh, sometimes they are very trickish in this, in that by the time they start playing this ethnic politics, you no longer come with the question of national identity. That suffers at the end of it. But if you look at the people, now, just like you were saying in case of Trinidad and Tobago, the Nigerian people, they want to live in peace. They want to live among themselves. The Hausa, the Yoruba, the Igbo. Of course, I'm just mentioning these three. If you go to Nigeria, there are lots of uh, ethnic groups you don't even hear of. No? All these people are able to live in peace. Indeed, they live in peace. They intermarriage among them. They do businesses among themselves. They don't have any problem. But when, mm. politi when politics come in, they start dividing. They start uh, creating all sorts of... Um, artificial boundary for themselves and it really has got to stop like you put it but how can it stop both in the case of trinidad tobago and in nigeria and in some other african countries because we want it to stop we can live in peace from different ethnic backgrounds it will take some analysis and, and people willing to question the system and questioning the system doesn't mean being disrespectful it means exercising your right and your freedom to question what's being said to you uh, and to seek truth. We inherited, um, you know, we are the product of uh, an education system based on the British colonial system in which people have been, I would say, formatted um, to write exams to pass exams and not necessarily to think critically. Um, I would say it's quite rare to find people who question what is being offered to them on, on a plate. People generally accept that whatever you're offering to them, that that's, that's the truth. And I'm saying that we need to be 
um, citizens who are more analytical, we need to exercise our freedom to ask questions um, without disrespecting anyone, without antagonizing anyone, without um, you know making defamatory remarks about anybody's character. But we should be able to exercise our freedom to to question what's being said and to to to, to seek information, to seek the truth about what's being presented to us. Uh, not just by politicians, but people across the board. And even as you spoke of some of the the ethnic groups in in Nigeria, it's um, just brought back to memory that you know some of these are some of our ancestors here, because in the days of slavery, a lot of our ancestors would have come from the West Coast, uh, the Gold Coast, and so we do have. Um, descendants of the Igbos, descendants of um, Mandingos, um, Ashanti, different tribes from from the West Coast. So um, now I'm thinking, well, maybe <laughs> maybe some of the the residue then is what we what we are experiencing today. Yeah, it is partly the responsibility of the people, but it it is majorly uh, based on the configuration of the country by the British. Uh, in that the way they structure the system, uh, they sort of hit one against the other. Uh, it is not necessarily because the people are coming from different ethnic background. This different ethnic, ethnic background, which might be in this case, whether the 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 Madiga, the Igbo, the Ashanti, the Yoruba, okay, they are different people, yes, but they have not always been fighting among themselves. There have been a way of interacting, you know. Uh, but when we form, when we ask them to come and stay together, of course, not based on certain agreement among them, based on the agreement of other people. Uh, these people, of course, I'm talking of the European power now. They uh, they didn't leave the people to also involve. You know, they didn't leave the system to involve because you know it's like a marriage. In the beginning, you talk about divorce. No, this is something that happened. Um, in that when you bring a woman and a man from different home to come and form a family, we cannot pretend that everything is going to be well all the time. For, it, for that marriage to work, there are going to be sacrifice. There are going to be, okay, yes, uh, you, you are not going to be right all the time. You are going to allow your partner to be right too and accept when you are wrong. This is when it is normal. But there are some times that uh, some people uh, can come to elevate the error of the other in order for some other ulterior motive. In the case of nations now, like uh, Nigeria, uh, the people are not allowed to really evolve naturally among themselves. The colonial system uh, deliberately favors certain part of the community, certain part of the nation, so that there can, there can be this tension, this division. And the, the reason for this is to make sure that the people do not concentrate on their real problems. Because if they concentrate on their real problem, they will be able to solve it, no? But because mm. now they are focusing on artificial uh, things that are not really there, and while they are fighting among themselves, then this colonial system uh, can begin to favor themselves, no? That is basically the explanation. So as to whether... Uh, maybe the people from uh, West Africa uh, just naturally do not know how to live among themselves. Uh, probably this is why the um, uh, the African diaspora inherited it. 
I don't think is um, is true. Uh, <laughs> yes, but even where you are there, because the same British that colonized Nigeria is the same that is colonizing the same place there. So the system is basically the same. The that system is, is broken. The system is broken. <laughs> Yes. Now, looking looking at looking at it uh, from that perspective, how do you define your own identity today? I mean, what would you like to say even about that? Then we are moving into languages now because all these, of course, they are tying together. That it's a tricky question, I'll tell you. Um, and I, I like the question. I'm, I'm I'm searching my thoughts. How do I really define myself? I guess most often than not, I would refer to myself, I would label myself as a Caribbean woman. Now, but what does that mean to somebody who is not from the Caribbean? Um, I think by and large, because we are such small countries in the Caribbean, um, maybe we, we tend to want to try to feel bigger <laughs> by associating ourselves with some sort of bigger entity and that entity would be the Caribbean um, to me then when I say I'm a Caribbean woman I recognize the region in which I live because when you go from one island to the next we're mainly an archipelago of islands although there are a few countries on the South American continent that identify as Caribbean countries because they have a shoreline um, with the Caribbean Sea. So it's a, it's a geographical area, the Caribbean, the Caribbean Sea, the Caribbean Basin. But I think beyond the geography, there is that common history of having all um, welcomed slaves, uh, that slaves were the ones who built these countries, built the economies of these countries, whether it was under the British colonial rule, the French colonial, the Spanish colonial rule. We had the Dutch um, colonial rule in the region as well. Um, so I think there's a sense of that common identity of being Caribbean. But what does that mean? For me, it means that we are, and I'm, I'm quoting um, one of my favorite political leaders in the region who is um, the Prime Minister of Barbados, Ms. Mia Motley, when she says, F comes before I, family comes before ideology. And she was speaking about political ideology, that we may have different political beliefs or persuasions, but she, she speaks about this notion of a Caribbean family. And that's how I feel about Caribbean people. Uh, I've traveled a lot throughout the Caribbean region. I've lived in other Caribbean countries for longer periods, you know, not just visiting. And there is a sense of community. There's a sense that we, we share a lot of um, traits in common. We have a love of music, a love of dance, a love of food. Um, there are different iterations of the same food in different Caribbean countries. Uh, we have a, a particular way that we dance. It's a Caribbean rhythm. And again, this, this crosses over whether it's the French Caribbean, Spanish Caribbean, British Caribbean. There is just um, some sense of 
community in this this region. I like to say that the the, the whole Caribbean is is my playground. I can go anywhere in the Caribbean and feel at home. Once I step out of the Caribbean, then I feel like I'm in a foreign country. Then I feel like I am the foreigner. I am the migrant. Um, I am the, in some cases, I'm the intruder. I'm the odd one out. Once I step out of the physical Caribbean space. But to, to give you a, a name or a description or a label of Caribbean would be difficult. It's, it's quite difficult. Thank you for your explanation. That is very important. In fact, that is what we want to hear. We want to, want to hear how you see it. Uh, the way you see it, that is good enough. That is what it is. There is no way that everyone must abide by. There are the ways upon which we see things. And that is what makes it even more beautiful. And again, we are talking of multiculturality, multi-ethnicity plural society, which is the way the world is today. Uh, that even though there are some people both here in Europe and in some other parts of the world in the United States who think that there is a pure race, there is a pure group of people, where it is difficult to even find this pure group of people, yeah. and certainly not in 2022. We are not going to be able to recreate that world again. Maybe one time in the distant past, there were very few people who probably have one culture among them. Probably it will never happen again. And you remember, for example, the movement of Marcus Garvey. And many after that also, this idea of uh, Africa unite and maybe Africans returning back to the base. No? Mm -hmm. We're we going to have to understand that. And we're going to understand it from a different light now. That probably... These more than 500 million Africans in the diaspora are probably not really going to return to stay in Africa. Some of them might return, which is a question of choice. It needs to be a choice. Why we might not necessarily be talking of physical return to stay in Africa, we can connect, we can collaborate, we can mm -hmm. work together, we can understand our history. But we must give our children the liberty to choose where do you want to stay? How do you see yourself? So this is where I come to the question of identity. This is where I really find it very interesting. If you look at the African diaspora very critically, you see that the question of identity is so important. It's an argument that is so critical for all of us. Whether you are in the first generation in the second generation, in the fifth or the sixth generation, is always an issue that must come up. Except maybe you are just denying it. If you understand it, then it's always going to come. And sometimes we are all going to respond to it differently. Now, that connects all to, um, actually the way I got the word connection is because of your language. Mm -hmm. Because before we started to record just now, you didn't make mention of language as a connect as a connection or as a connective factor uh, or maybe connected people so this is where i'm going here now let me understand how you get into languages and language as a connective factor this was a new world that was open to me in high school when i started learning spanish and french and i think i just hid in that world because it was a world that, that provided comfort to me uh, and, and a great escape but it also became my superpower. 
in the sense that that's the only thing I was good at in high school. <laughs> so I pretty much uh, just grasped that. I, I glatched onto it and I held onto it because that was like my, my life boy, you know, my life jacket. That's what kept me afloat in the sea of trouble. And, um, you know, I can look back now and think, well, some people say, well, I had no choice. I couldn't choose any of the subjects, you know, in, in our British colonial system, you have to choose the subjects that you want to write for your um, O-level exam and then your A-level exam. So I didn't have a choice. Uh, that was my choice. That was all I was good at. But moving on from there, I quickly was able to see and experience how without even leaving my country, because I didn't have my parents, you know, didn't have the financial means after the divorce to, um, to you know, allow me to participate in sort of travel, linguistic programs and that kind of thing. Um, but without even leaving my country, I was able to host French students from neighboring islands of Martinique and Guadeloupe who would come to Trinidad and Tobago. Every year there was this student exchange program through the Alliance Française. And so through hosting those students at home for two weeks, three weeks, I was exposed to their language. And these connections, these very real connections, um, again, further opened up my realm of possibilities. I started to, to see and to understand that um, speaking foreign languages could be my way out of uh, trouble, could be, could, could be my career. And, and so I really pursued foreign languages with all my heart. And in the end, I, I succeeded brilliantly, I would say, um, in foreign languages. But it really was because I, I had already understood in my teenage years that this could open career doors for me. And so at the very first opportunity, and there's one, there's one moment and one anecdote that stands out for me right after high school. Um, so I didn't have the luxury of going straight on to university. Again, I didn't have the financial means. Um, so I took a break and I, I got a job um, where I, I was a trainee journalist at the time. And during my duties as a journalist, there was this uh, business delegation that came from Martinique from the Chamber of Commerce. And they held a press conference, and I was covering that press conference for the news. And um, of course, <laughs> they speak French. So when I approached them to interview them and I spoke French to them, they were all, you know, so amazed. Like, who is this Trinidadian person speaking to us in French in their own language? Um, and so I was able to interview them. Well, I had to interview in English for the news, but we were able to chat and exchange phone numbers in, um, in, in the time after. And at the very first opportunity that I got many years later to travel to Martinique, um, I still had those business cards. And I can tell you, I called, I, I reached out to, to those people I had met many years before. And it was like, you know, the time had not passed. Uh, I was able to go visit places that I would not have been able to access if I didn't speak French. And so that made it very real for me that language is a connector. Language opens doors of opportunity. Language 
bridges barriers. And so uh, when I stepped into Martinique for the very first time, I felt like I had so many friends there because people remembered me. People remembered that connection that we had. Uh, you know, I was being invited out to, to dinners, to cocktail receptions, to conferences, weekends on, you know, somebody's boat. All doors were open to me just because I spoke their language. And that's, uh, it leads me to a quotation that I, I love from Nelson Mandela, which is, you speak to a man in a language that he understands and it goes to his head. But if you speak to a man in his language, it goes to his heart. And that really sums up the power of mastering a foreign language. Because you are the bridge across the language barrier when you can speak to someone in their language. And that's what I've been able to do um, in many circumstances right here in the Caribbean region. As I mentioned earlier, we would have had uh, the Spanish uh, colonial masters, the British, the French. And so right within this small geographical space of the Caribbean, we have countries um, with official languages that are very different and which can be a language barrier if you don't speak that language. But for me, because I speak these languages, French, Spanish, English, and Creole, I can literally hop from one island to the next without feeling alienated by the language because I speak these languages. And that is the power, as I say, the superpower um, of connecting via languages. Thank you so much for that. That is very important. That's cool. That is really cool. All right, Creole, what do you mean by that? So in, in our region, uh, you have the official languages of our former colonial masters, and then you've had languages that have evolved here, um, sort of secret code languages that would have developed, again, among our, our, our slave ancestors. So you have in the region what would be known as, as dialects, as a pidgin languages, and in the case of Creole, it's... it's, it's um, major in, in um, major part the French Creole, which is spoken in Haiti, Martinique, Guadeloupe, and neighboring former British colonial islands of St. Lucia, I wish I had a map to show you, but St. Lucia and Dominica, former British colonial islands. But because of the geographical proximity to French-speaking Martinique and Guadeloupe, they share a Creole language, which is very similar. And so they can communicate um, among themselves without speaking official French or official English. And so these are languages that have developed in the region um, that I've also had the, the opportunity to learn because I, I lived in Haiti, I lived in Martinique uh, for three years, Guadeloupe for six years, Haiti for three years. And, and so I've been able to learn this, this almost like a code language um, that, that, that exists today that is used uh, in the case of Haiti, um, Haitian Creole is recognized alongside French as the official language of the country. That's interesting. Which means now, if uh, a, a message were to be communicated um, and you maybe only speak the official language and they don't want you to understand it, they can speak this language and you are cut off. Yes. So for <laughs> foreigners, and this is, you know, I have so many anecdotes, but um, for foreigners traveling to Haiti, uh, because French is 
one of the official languages, if you speak French, of course, then you can deal with the administration. You can, you know, you can get business done in Haiti when you speak French. But if you really want to get down into the culture of the people and really understand their mindset, uh, their culture, their passion, you need to understand Creole. And what I've found over the years um, is, and this is having worked in, in Haiti post-2010 post earthquake, um, where a lot of humanitarians were coming in to assist from across the globe. And the French-speaking humanitarians thought that they had an advantage, which, which they did um, in being able to deal with the administration and, and you know, attend government meetings and that kind of thing. There certainly was an advantage if you mastered French. But what I discovered for myself is that having lived previously um, in Martinique and Guadeloupe and having learned French Creole, I was able to connect with the people on the ground, the people who had been impacted by the earthquake. I was able to understand their stories, very painful stories to listen to, stories of loss, stories of death, um, stories of grief. But I was able to listen actively. I was able to empathize from a place of understanding their language and not being forced, so to speak, to impose French on them or to impose my native English on them. And I can tell you, Bay, that made the world of difference. I, I look back and I know that that was a life-changing moment for me that completely altered the trajectory of, of my life and my career. And it's because um, I understood Creole. This Creole, is it uh, a language that everybody understands and some people understand the official language or is it a language that you need to go to school to understand? Can you, can you say anything about that? Traditionally, it's the language that the parents spoke when they wanted to, to, to tell secrets in front of their children. And actually going back to the colonial days or the early days of independence, Parents did not want their children to learn or to speak the Creole. And that's still a debate that's um, quite active in the French countries in particular, Martinique, Guadeloupe, uh, St. Martin, Haiti. Not, well, not so, so much in Haiti. But there was this notion that Creole was a code language and that if you wanted to be considered to be respectable, um, in the eyes of the administration, then you needed to speak official French. And so it was, you were looked down on if you spoke Creole at school in the, in the courtyard. Um, luckily that has changed. And luckily for me, when I, when I first lived in, in Martinique and Guadeloupe, uh, and I was, I was actually teaching English there, I was teaching English to primary school students. And that was my initial contact um, real exposure to Creole, where I was listening in on the children who were speaking Creole in the courtyard during recess. And that's how I started learning the Creole. I would have been hearing songs in Creole before, but not necessarily understanding the meaning. But I started learning from the children. So I was teaching them English, but they didn't know 
that I was learning Creole from them in the courtyard. And then eventually I did take the opportunity to learn um, through through a tutor. I was able to to get some Creole classes because I was interested. I wanted to figure out this secret code. So <laughs> I got myself a tutor and I learned Creole. And then when I eventually went to Haiti um, in the context of, of the earthquake, the I worked with the Red Cross at the time, and um, it was offered to us as staff to learn Creole officially because our employer recognized how critical it was to be able to speak the language of the people, not just the language of the administration and the government, because we were on the ground. We were, you know, delivering water and medical assistance and so forth to the people. And so um, many of us colleagues did take the opportunity to learn Creole. And that semester, I still have the book somewhere around <laughs> my desk here. I still have the, the Creole book that I was learning from. It's like an infant's book. But I was an infant learner of, of Creole. So, yeah, I, I broke the code. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. All right. Now, another thing that I really find interesting uh, in your work, in, in the way that you refer to language as a connector, uh, is that in our demography, this is a very important thing, no? in that um, ma many people in, the demo in that demography are in the diaspora, the African diaspora, no? Okay, African immigrant also, if we want to put it like that, people that are coming from Africa who are emigrating to either Europe or other parts of the Western country. So uh, to these people, it is very important, I think, that they learn the language of the people so they can communicate. Because immigration sometimes is a very funny thing, you know, mm -hmm. in that you will say, ah, okay, I'm going to... I'm traveling from maybe uh, Ghana or Nigeria to maybe France or, or UK. Ah, I will just go there. In two or three years, I'll be back. That's all. Well, in most of the cases, it's not like that. Yeah. You get there. For many Africans that are in Europe as immigrants, maybe those that are passing through the... Because now it, it is difficult to get visa, no? When I came, I came here with a visa, which expired, of course. So I'm not a little different from many of them that are coming. Only that, okay, I had a visa, I flew to this place, and I still have to pass through the stress anyway because I, I stayed for a very long time. I didn't have paper. So those years quickly go away from you. So you, then you, question of what an immigrant is become real to you. So in that sense, if you don't understand the language of the people you are going to be living with, Life becomes difficult for you. And not only that, very soon, if you are a young person, because I came to Italy, I was 24 years old. Now, very soon, you get married, then you become a parent. When you become a parent now, that, that, that thing that you were saying, I will just come here in five or three years, I will be back. You see, it's not really practical as it is, <laughs> no? So, you, you you are not deciding to learn the language become a very huge mistake on your part because you are going to suffer the consequence of that. Because like you are saying, now you don't understand the language of the people. How are you going to be able to understand the people? How are you going to be able to interact with them? This is a problem I have seen a lot, at least among many Nigerians in Italy. And it is true if you go also to France, to uh, Germany, uh, okay, if, you, if they were to travel maybe to UK or to US, it's a different thing because they speak English, no? 
But I'm really interested in the language because everybody in this world is not going to speak English. If you're an immigrant, or maybe you are a person who decided to leave your country to another country, and you want to connect. So I want you to speak to that, the importance of learning the language of the people so you can connect, so you can communicate. Absolutely, Obi. And you've, you've opened up a Pandora's box there. I have to figure out where should I start. But the first um, thought that comes to mind, so I have also been a migrant um, to the countries where I, 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 I traveled and I lived and worked um, and, and settled for a while. And but but the thing that that really strikes me, I would say, um, is right here in my own country. So right now, uh, Trinidad and Tobago is host to a wave of Venezuelan migrants um, since 2018, in particular, uh, since the presidential elections of 2018, and you know the the economic and political crisis in Venezuela. There has been a massive um, movement of Venezuelan migrants to my country. Now, we've had Venezuelans coming to Trinidad and Tobago for decades, for, for, for centuries even. Um, and Trinidadians going to Venezuela to go shopping. So we've, we've had friendly relations with Venezuela as our neighbor for, for all times. But because this was such a huge influx in a short space of time, literally overnight. What happened here in Trinidad and Tobago was um, a very strong reaction. So in the first instance, um, yes, a sense of solidarity that, okay, we hear what's happening in our, in our neighboring country. We hear about the difficulties and yes, we welcome our neighbors. But as you said, as time goes on, and then people settle. They're not just here temporarily and then planning to go back to their home because many of them traveled without their families. Um, they came here to try to seek a better life, to find a job, to uh, earn some income, to send back home to their families and then eventually go back to Venezuela. That's what many of the business I speak to, that was their plan. But that was 2018, we're in 2022. And they're still here. And so what has really struck me in my own country, uh, the experience of being host to migrants, is that the sort of honeymoon period was quickly over in terms of that expression of solidarity towards our Venezuelan neighbors. And now more and more, you the conflict is rising. So there's a lot more conflict around the presence of Venezuelans in our country. Now, this is quite ironic for me because 10 to 15 years ago, um, under previous uh, political administration, there was a huge move to promote Spanish as the first foreign language of our country. Um, we were getting into trade relations with uh, South America, and so the administration at the time wanted everybody to learn Spanish. Uh, there was a massive campaign where street names were being converted um, into Spanish and English signage. We had bilingual street signs. Uh, when you would go into the government offices, the signage was bilingual. And so there was a massive push to get our population, our English-speaking population, to learn Spanish. 
And here it is 15 years later, we have a tremendous opportunity to be able to speak Spanish, practice Spanish, perfect our Spanish because of the presence of Venezuelan migrants in our midst. And ironically, and I just cannot understand it, this is where you have our local population pushing back against Spanish. Why do these people come here and speak in Spanish? Why they don't learn to speak English? Okay, yes, there is merit in them learning to speak English. I fully agree with that. Yes, the Venezuelans who come here should learn to speak the language of their host. I agree. But on the flip side, why don't we learn to speak Spanish, embrace the fact that we have the opportunity right now to speak Spanish with these migrants who are in our midst, who are working in our communities, who are going, sending their children to school, where our children go to school. Why don't we seize that opportunity to improve our Spanish instead of what's actually happening where there is a pushback? That is something I do not understand. And I look on as a very interested party because I speak Spanish. So, you know, when I meet Venezuelans here, I ask them um, whether they want to practice their English because many of them are making the effort to learn English. I ask them if they want to speak English. If not, I can speak to them in their language. But it's something that boggles my mind. Another anecdote I would share really quickly is um, I've had the privilege of traveling to and living in countries where I spoke the language of the host country. So it was never an issue for me personally. I was able to fit in um, quite seamlessly. But for the first time when I went to a country where I did not speak the language and I was there for a year, this was in Bangladesh, I found myself in a very curious predicament of needing the services of an interpreter. Now, I am an interpreter. I work in French, Spanish, and English. But when I went to Bangladesh to work, I needed an interpreter to be able to communicate with the people there who did not speak English. And so it was very curious for me to feel what it's like to depend on someone to communicate my ideas and to be able to understand what somebody else is saying, that I, I had to use the filter of an interpreter to help me do my job. Again, I was working with the Red Cross in um, the Rohingya refugee movement where you had people leaving Myanmar, fleeing violence there to, 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 to seek safety in, in Bangladesh and having to communicate with persons who were traumatized um, to hear their stories and to be able to, to amplify their stories, but needing an interpreter to do so. So I understand that migrant experience of hearing sounds, hearing a tongue, a language that you have no clue what's being said. You're, you're, you know, you're completely bewildered when you don't speak the language of your host. And so, yes, it's very important to make the effort. And it is an effort and it is a sacrifice. And it does require discipline to learn the language of your host country. But I recognize that the sooner you do it, the better it is for you, for your interactions with the people there, uh, to feel that sense of connection and community. Uh, you need to be able to speak the, the language of the people who are welcoming you 
into their their space. So I, I definitely want to make a plug for that. Learn the language um, of your host country. Thank you for thank you so much for that. It is what a lot of people have been saying because you know. <laughs> The excuses are very many sometimes, you know. Some people will say, okay, well, I'm just here for some time. I'm not really, I'm not, Italy is not be, not be the country. I just, I'm just passing, you know. Mm. You know, I, I get it. I get it. You're just passing. But the, the time, the thing is that if you learn one language, you know more. It's not, it's not, language cannot be a disadvantage. It's always an advantage to you. To you, not to the people you are learning their language. It is to you because... It's a way of communication. This is why I really like the term that you use. That language is a connector. It helps you to connect. Before I started this interview with you, I did an interview with um, a woman who is running for um, to be a, a local councillor here in the city of Verona. It's an Italian, no? Okay, it's not that everybody must do that, no? but this is my job. I, I interview people, no? It is true that we are using English now, but I can also do do it in Italian. I do have a version of Uberhi podcast only in Italian. Excellent. So the thing is that it helped me. It's not happy. It's not for the Italian. I'm not doing it for the Italian people. I'm doing it for myself. This is my story. It is not the Italian story. If Italian, if maybe for example, somebody is running for a political office here, they want to speak to the Italian people, they will not come to me. There, there are other channels, Italian, that, that they can go to. But before, because I make myself available, I learn the language, and I have a platform to be able to do this, I can say, hey, welcome. You don't need to speak English. I speak your language because I am in your land. Bravo. I think it is, I think it is a common <laughs> sense that people just should do. <laughs> All right, a question for you. Have you ever learned a new language? What are the difficulties of learning a new language? Let's spend some time there. I think discipline is the greatest challenge. Um, so last year, I committed to learning German. I have a German textbook, workbook from since the age of 17. <laughs> it was one of my, my goals at the time after learning French and Spanish. I thought I wanted to uh, learn German. Uh, and just, just a quick anecdote. Tobago um, is a very popular tourist destination for Scandinavian visitors. And at one point, there were a lot of German um, visitors, Swedish, Danish, uh, Austrian visitors to Tobago. And so at the time, I thought, hmm, maybe I can learn German. Maybe one day I can work in the tourism sector. Fast forward, uh, yeah, 30 years. Um, I found the book in a box last year and I thought, oh, let me get back into German. But really, I did not discipline myself to learn. And of course, learning techniques have evolved over the years. It's a lot easier now to learn a new language. You have so many different apps you can download on your mobile phone or on your, your computer. You don't have to go to a physical classroom and get a, a tutor to learn a language. Matter of fact, you can get tutors online. You can uh, you know, pay by the hour, pay as you go. Uh, tutors, there's so many different ways you can learn languages. But in my case, I think it's the discipline that was lacking. Um, I, I you know, have been building a business uh, since I returned home in 2020. And so that became my priority. And I sincerely didn't commit the time needed 
to learn German in the way that I would. But I know that it's it's still a goal that I have. I may not get to the level of proficiency in German that I, you know, that I have in French and Spanish, which I've been learning and still learning over 30 years. But I, I just like the thought of being able to add an additional language to to my, my quiver. Now, talking always of the connection, I look at our demography, the African diaspora, whether it is only for the question of language or any other thing in between. Um, how do you see the possibility of us able to connect among ourselves and even do businesses? Why not? Because in this channel, we try to promote that a lot. Because I think, like I was saying before, though, we don't necessarily need to make the physical transfer okay, to Africa. Yes, that is not yes. what we need to do. This world belongs to us. We can live anywhere we, need, we want to live, but we must connect. So tell me about that connection. How do you feel about it? Well, I'm happy to say that it's it's a connection that that exists um, right here in Trinidad and Tobago. We have uh, an association known as the Emancipation Support Committee, um, and so they have taken on the mandate of celebrating our African identity and traditions um, here locally. And so every year, uh, particularly at Emancipation Day. Um, which is on August 1st, that's when we celebrate the emancipation of, of slavery. Um, they organize huge festivities and they would bring in speakers from, from the African continent, from different countries uh, every year. So there's an intellectual um, exercise, you know, lots of lectures and, and debates to, to inform and educate people. But there's also the cultural aspect, having groups perform different types of um, cultural activities and of course the food we can't get away from the food you must have food so the full um, culinary traditions are on display at that time of the year but outside of that festival um, you do have businesses um, we do have uh, African migrants among us I can't give you figures off the top of my head, but we do have quite a few countries represented here, um, including Nigeria, uh, including some of the French-speaking African countries, um, Mali, Senegal, Cameroon. And, and so people, as you have mentioned before, you know, people may have come here for whatever reasons for a short time, and then they end up getting married, they have children, they settle down. And so we do have um, Africans in our midst who have made hair home. On a broader scale, if I'm looking throughout the Caribbean region, uh, just recently, a couple of weeks ago, Barbados, our neighboring um, Caribbean country, Barbados, signed uh, an MOU with um, for, for air, an air services agreement with the government of Ghana. So that is going to open airlift between Ghana and Barbados. And of course, Barbados being in the Caribbean, it means that the whole of the Caribbean is going to be able to benefit from this direct um, air service. So I think we are going to see more travel both ways. Um, physically, uh, Caribbean people going to see the motherland and um, persons from Africa coming to see what their descendants have become, how we've, we've settled in the Caribbean and how we've, we've grown up. Um, but we do have African-owned businesses uh, in, in the region. 
We have uh, right now, actually this week, it's the African Film Festival here in Trinidad and Tobago. It's actually a girlfriend of mine who directs the festival and basically it showcases um, the best of African films here so that we can get to see ourselves and see our um, ancestors, see, see, where, see where we came from. We get to see it on film. So um, there are things that are going on. Um, the connections are there. there. There are many layers of connections as well. And so I think it bodes very well, um, even for the physical connection, to be able to not just return to Africa, but have Africans come and discover the Caribbean for themselves. Come and see, you know, how, how we've evolved here in the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah. I, I read about the, uh, that, um, that airline uh, flight. I said, well, wow, this is something really interesting. It really is interesting. Um, now, let me ask you maybe a kind of intellectual question, just an opinion of yours, no? If you were to propose a kind of connection that should really exist between Africa and the African diaspora, and in this case, the Caribbean, which area do you think are the most important to concentrate on in networking among ourselves, that is, between Africa, between the Caribbean and African countries? Well, I think business is probably the place to start. Uh, I think having trade, uh, import, export of goods, services, um, that might motivate people to take an additional step, which might be learning the language. Interestingly enough, um, my alma mater, the University of the West Indies, um, where I studied, does offer Yoruba classes. So we do have a possibility here to learn uh, the Yoruba language. Um, and so I think that would be a next step. I, I believe people need to have some form of motivation to learn a language. Otherwise, you don't just go language, you know. Well, maybe some people learn languages just for the fun of it. But I think if there's an economic imperative, people will invest the time, because it is an investment, both of time, effort, money, to learn language. But I think uh, one can trigger the next. And coming out of that, I think we, we can see much more meaningful connections, to come back to that term, where beyond the business side, uh, people will be inspired to really gain a broader understanding, a deeper understanding of where we came from. Because this is part, Africa is part of our history. It's part of our story. So I think the language will allow for that uh, deeper understanding. This is 2022. This is when we are talking of opening up airline uh, direct flight from the Caribbean to Africa. And we want to even call that a progress. Yes, it is a progress. Um, why is it that it's only now that we are even talking of that? Hmm. Why it was it possible before? <laughs> well, I don't know the intimate details of that agreement, and I can't speak for our political leaders because let's let's just be clear: um, these kind of agreements are signed in a political framework. There has to be some kind of policy in place um, before agreements like this are are signed. Um, but I would say perhaps after that colonial period, we 
in the Caribbean would have been left with vestiges of, uh, let's just say, connections to that other colonial master, uh, not the British, not the French, not the Spanish, but the United States of America, because we have taken part in, we have absorbed so much of that culture through cable television, through the music. Um, it's it's also it's almost become a substitute culture. And I think we have traditionally had our eyes set on North America rather than looking back, so to speak, at where we came from. That's my opinion. Uh, it you know it can be argued. Um, I'm sure there are people who will disagree with me and that's fine. But my opinion is that we replaced one culture, uh, in our case in Trinidad and Tobago, the British culture under colonial days. We replaced that with American culture because that's who we traded with. And, you know, there's one of our ministers who likes to say, follow the money. If you follow the money, that's that's our major trade partner. And so there's bound to be some sort of influence being exerted on our traditions, our culture, our way of doing things um, because of those ties. So why is it only now that we're talking about uh, airlift between the African continent and the Caribbean? Well, maybe now is the time. Maybe before it just wasn't the time. I don't know. Maybe there are persons who have tried to do this in the past. I, I don't know for sure. Maybe they've tried and failed. Maybe the conditions just um, weren't coinciding at the time to make it happen. But for whatever reason it is now, um, we've managed to take a step forward to actually sign an MOU, which opens the door for real flights between the continent of Africa and what we like to call the continent of the Caribbean. We, we, we want to be our own big continent, <laughs> as small as we are. So let's, let's see how that unfolds. Let's see how that changes the way we interact. I, I'm certainly very excited about it. Absolutely. Me too. Me too. You see, I, I'm thinking, I, I have the impression that perhaps uh, between Africans in the diaspora, in this case, we are looking at the Africans in the Caribbean and Africans in, Africans in Africa. There is somebody that is doing the middleman who is transferring the information, who is trying to sort of tell you this is what the African says. And this person goes to Africa and tells you this is what the African diaspora says. Is it possible that we can be giving somebody to do this privilege, uh, giving the, uh, this privilege to somebody to do the work for us, whereas we can actually be connecting directly, directly to ourselves? Uh, if we want to learn anything, we can actually go there to learn it. For example, I've done a lot of uh, interview with university professors in U.S., and I continue to do. I still have a lot to do because mm -hmm. our history... It's, it's an ocean that we need to uh, explore. So when we say we want to learn about Africa, it, I don't think it is too complicated because Africa is not a theory. Africa is not something you need to read. It's something you actually can experience. You can see it, no? If you say maybe your ancestors uh, were taken away from Africa 
Africa is not in the moon. Africa is in this planet. You can actually go there and find mm. out for yourself. The, the language they spoke then is the same language they speak today. Irrespective, okay, we can take away the colonial languages. We speak English, uh, Portuguese, and the rest, but there are still the languages that were spoken then, like the Yoruba, the Hausa, the Igbo, the Ashanti. There are many of them. They are still there today. The people are still there. I am thinking that, of course, this is not only to the African diaspora, but even African government at home still need to care about their people in the diaspora. In that, I am thinking that somebody is just doing the, the joke like this, just playing us like this. And telling no, this is yeah, this is what you should take now. This is what is mm. that, that is it. Do we have the possibility of able to connect among ourselves, African and African diaspora? That is, a- I I would say it is being done. Um, perhaps it's not being done on a huge scale that would get the attention of the media. Because remember, a lot of what we think is. Let's admit this. It's influenced by what we see in the news. Uh, And depending on the news outlet that you tune into, you're going to get a very different perspective of any country or any people. Uh, The the first example that that comes to mind is is the image of Haiti in mainstream media. You know, Haiti is almost always portrayed as the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Um, it's always portrayed in terms of the violence. And yes, these things are happening in Haiti. There is violence, there's gang violence, there are kidnappings. Yes, there's poverty. But there's a whole other side to Haiti that nobody knows because it's never been portrayed in the media. And unless you go to Haiti, and I, and I really cite Haiti because it was the first black republic in the hemisphere okay and so they they are a model for us in the caribbean right they've got 200 years of independence so had i not had haitian friends and had i not gone to haiti myself and discovered the beautiful side of haiti the nature side of haiti had i not had the opportunity to interact with with haitians i would really just think that haiti was only what I saw on the television. And so the same goes for the African continent. I mean, how many people I have, I have met who think Africa is one country? Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's a really extreme case of, of ignorance, but the reality is that that's kind of the, the image that's that's channeled in some places. So unless you seek to inform yourself, unless you try to educate yourself, unless you ask some questions, you may not know that Africa is a whole lot of countries. Uh, And as you said, rightfully so, um, we can go to Africa, we can go see what Africa is, all the different facets of Africa, right? Um, We can experience the language of our ancestors because of the same languages that are being spoken in some cases nowadays. So we have that opportunity. I personally have had that opportunity and it's it's been such a privilege. Um, I worked recently in, in Zimbabwe for seven months. And although it was at the time when the pandemic uh, broke out, I was able to, to visit some of the more remote villages. I had never in my life 
driven for so many hours because I come from a small island. You drive for three hours, you reach the end of the island. There's nowhere else to go. You reach in the sea. And there was I in Zimbabwe driving for hours and hours and hours. And I could not see a drop of water anywhere. There was no sea. There was no lake. So for me as a Caribbean person, surrounded by water, going to a landlocked country in Africa, it was an amazing journey, um, an amazing discovery for me to see how people live without water. I mean, I'm probably saying this to you, you're thinking, well, what is she talking about? <laughs> but when you're so used to looking out your window and you can see the sea and you can drive around the coastline and you can always see the sea and you get to a place where you drive hours and you don't see the sea, it's impressive. Um, so that's just one little anecdote. But I was glad that I had that opportunity to to visit not, not just um, the capital city, which looks very much like a colonial town. You know, the British built quite similar architecture wherever they went. They gave similar names to streets wherever they went. There's always a Queen Street, a King Street, a Prince Street, a, a King George. Uh, you know, in Tobago, for example, we have the capital of Tobago, Scarborough. Uh, you have names like Roxborough and Speyside. And you go to Zimbabwe and you have similar names because that's part of the British colonial tradition, um, the vestiges of, of colonial days that would have been left behind. But the place, the, the vegetation, the food, uh, the colors, the scents, um, so, so different. And so, yes, I agree with you. We have that opportunity to go to discover for ourselves where we came from. And as far as finances allow, we should take that opportunity. I certainly have been able to do so. I will definitely be doing so when that uh, new line comes in through Ghana. I've never been to the West Coast. So I'm definitely going to be making it my business to, to go to explore the West Coast of Africa. Thank you so much for that. <clears throat> um, it is important. It's something that we have to do. But even African government also need to do it because the Africans in diaspora are just your brothers. They are the other part of you. Without them, you are also not complete, no? In this sense. So anyway, the argument is actually deeper sometimes, and it is broader. By the way, we are going to have to uh, move uh, a bit, okay? Now, you have a business. Uh, because you will spend some time here, I think it's right that you, you spend this few seconds to let people know how you, they can profit from your business. What do you do, and how can people benefit from it? Please go. So I started a uh, business in what I love. <laughs> For many, many years, I worked in the field of communications, but I've decided to dedicate myself entirely to my first love, which is languages. And so I have a language services agency called Interpreting Your Needs. And we do exactly what we say. We interpret your language needs and we provide the solution. So we provide uh, conference interpreting services, translation of documents, but also multilingual project management. And how can people benefit from my services? Well, you know, I have to say thanks to COVID. Um, <laughs> and yes, COVID has caused great loss around the globe. But I have to acknowledge that thanks to COVID, um, the technologies have evolved so quickly. The technologies uh, for online virtual meetings, for example, which would have been in development prior to COVID, 
uh, were accelerated thanks to COVID. And so now I can work from right here on my little island uh, with my dog barking <laughs> and the next to the sea. I can work from here. And um, I have been serving as an interpreter for meetings globally with uh, participants tuning in from Africa. Actually, just last week I had a conference like that. The participants um, were part of the power pool, the North African power pool. We were talking about renewable energy um, with an interpreter, another interpreter I was working. She was in Spain. I'm here in the Caribbean and the participants are on the African continent. So it's a global village. Uh, it's a global service right here from the comfort of, of, of home. And I'm able to, to work with people across time zones. It doesn't matter anymore. Hey, if I have to get up at three in the morning to serve you, I will do so. That's okay. Um, but essentially, I am doing what I love. And I love serving people. I love helping people to bridge language barriers. I love that I get to be that bridge so that they can communicate their ideas, that they can collaborate with people across the globe to solve problems um, that they are facing and that through that bridge um, there can be progress. That's how I see myself. That's how I see my service. And so I'm very happy to do so. Uh, you can reach out to me or visit our website, interpretingyourneeds.com. I'm also on LinkedIn. You can look out for me, Jenica. Um, I get a lot of um, you know, questions on, on LinkedIn that I'm happy to answer and just to make, make friendly connections, you know, yes, there's a lot of business on LinkedIn, but very friendly connections. People just wanting to get to know who you are, uh, how things are like in your country. So I'm open to that as well. What would be the final statement here? Uh, looking at what we have discussed today, maybe a message of yours or anything you think can be the conclusion of the conversation. Please go. My final thoughts of AE, I want to come right back to Nelson Mandela, um, pay tribute to him and for, for his journey that has impacted the globe. Um, and he visited my country many years ago. But just to remind us, he said, you know, you speak to a man in a language he understands, it goes to his head. But if you speak to a man in his language, it goes to his heart. And that is what I want to leave you and your audience with, that it's a different connection. It's a heart connection when you speak the language of the person that you're speaking with. Yes, they may be able to speak your language, but it's a different conversation when you can speak that person's language. That's the value of learning a foreign language. It really is a superpower. Jenica Maya, thank you so much. It really will be a very interesting and a full, full lecture. Thank you so much. Grazie, Vehi. Ciao. Grazie. Thank you. <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate and review Obehead Podcast and share with your friends who might need it. I remain Obehead A14. Thank you so much for listening and talk to you in the next episode.